Hey, welcome to episode 89 of the Thoughtcast. I'm your host, Philip Elke, coming to you from northern Minnesota. Today I'm joined by longtime Thoughtcast co-host Jody Pulaski, coming in from Georgia. How's it going, Jody? It is going stormy and gloomy outside, but warm and happy inside here in Georgia right now. Um, I just got back from a work week and I'm excited to sort of settle in and recall one of my, well, not my favorite, my spookiest childhood movie, The Last Unicorn. Yeah, we're talking about some classic animation from 1982, the Rankin Boss, or Rankin Bass, <laughs> Rankin Bass. We're pumping that bass today. Uh, mm -hmm. Productions, you know, the classic studio behind the the christmas specials you think of rudolph the red-nosed reindeer frosty the snowman there's the santa claus film little drummer boy a lot of great stuff but um they released a uh, fantastic full-length feature animation uh, theatrically released film one of their few theatrically released films from the studio uh, the last unicorn and I uh, it just kind of turned up recommended to me on IMDb one day I was like man I've not seen this I've heard good things about it uh, very unfamiliar with it and uh, so I was like why not give this a ride on the Thoughtcast? Uh, we like to pull up some hidden gems from you know from the classic era in the 1980s ye old 1980s Americana. Uh, yeah, Jody, what do you think of The Last Unicorn? This one is full of nostalgia for me. Unlike you, I did watch this as a child, even though it came out 1982, so like a decade before I was born. I was really good friends with the Balstead family, and they were all about like fantasy movies. And this film was one that we watched quite a few times. Uh, but now as an adult watching it, I feel like it was sort of written for adults in mind. So I'm really happy to revisit it. Um, it kind of gives off some Little Mermaid vibes. I can feel some feminist undertones, um, things about isolation and freedom, and just a lot of themes that still ring true today. So I'm happy that people are still kind of like cult following this one. I'm not sure, obviously, how financially it did, but I'm excited to, to kind of dive into this one. It's a film, yeah, it's based on... Uh, classic literary novel, a fantasy novel by Peter S. Beagle, published in 1968. He was 29 at the time. He wrote this during his 20s, and he's still active today as an author. Uh, and since then, he's published several works that uh, take place within the film or the <laughs> play, take place within the world of The Last Unicorn. Uh, and then he did have some involvement in the film writing the screenplay um, and is is kind of an interesting story how this uh, film came to light and is sort of an exception to how things often work in Hollywood when trying to adapt a, uh, a celebrated piece of fiction um, you know this, you can draw a lot of comparisons to the Lord of the Rings which Peter S. Beagle had worked on as a screenwriter um, for I believe um, Rankin Bass or else there was the Ralph Bakshi Lord of the Rings film um, that, that was also around this time, late 70s. 
Um, but that, that was a whole, um, you know, separate, you know, I don't know. It's a weird timeline with, uh, with these animated Lord of the Rings adaptations that came out in the late seventies, early eighties. And I think Dawson and my brother and I briefly mentioned them, uh, when we talked about, um, I don't know, there are a couple other, what, what did we talk about? That was, was maybe rock and roll from Nelvana or, um, was there something else from Ralph Bakshi that we cover <laughs> on this show? Um, it, it's not uh, ringing a bell for yeah. me, but as soon as you say it, of course I'll know it. <laughs> I'm trying to think of some of the older films that we've covered. Um, but you know, they, um, that old school Hobbit movie was one that was a bit of a mainstay of my childhood. We would rent it. We never owned it on video surprisingly, because we had a large videotape collection growing up, uh, but part of that was due to like, you know, my mom was a subscriber to the Disney uh, video club for, uh, for a little while. The Disney movie club, I think it was called. Oh, and us too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So those uh, jackets start to really stack up over time. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're subscribed to that. And then of course that's all Disney stuff. So the non-Disney stuff is a little, a little more rare. Um, but yeah, we would rent the, the Hobbit movie from 1977, which was Rankin Bass, um, from the local library. You probably did that with a few things, huh? Oh yeah. We were so lucky to have a library in our hometown. I remember watching countless VHSs thanks to them. Yeah. Um, sometimes you get library quality rentals if you're especially with like DVDs once that became a thing. (laughs) Thank goodness those VHS tapes could withstand anything. But once it came to DVDs, this is a real crapshoot as to a library rental would actually work. And I feel like this is one that you would want to watch on VHS. You kind of almost want the the 70s, 80s vibe. Like you want the film to kind of skip. (laughs) Did you watch it remastered? Oh, yeah, it's a gorgeous restoration on Amazon Prime Video. And, and I, I, you know, this is my first time seeing it. So uh, it was kind of cool to see that old school animation aesthetic, you know, from Rankin Best, which is really unique compared to things like Disney. Um, yeah, in, in it has this, a really, oh. <laughs> no, in, in like a fully clean version. But yeah, continue. Well, I was just going to say the gentle colors of this movie and just that the collaboration of sort of like anime on top of this watercolor um, cartoon style, it works so well. I mean, I I saw the remastered and obviously I'm remembering the old version. I think it's perfect both ways. Yeah, there are a couple differences, tweaks that they made. I understand Um, not enough to cause me to lament learning them. Um, I thought this film, because it, you know, I, I think sort of like with the movies on Disney Plus, uh, you know, they're, you know, cautious of content, of course, for modern kids. And so I think there was seen depictions of smoking that were removed from the updated version. A couple instances of the word damn <laughs> were pulled out. Were the body parts still visible in the remastered version on the harpy and on the women? Oh, yeah. The harpy has some realistic looking 
you know, Tommy. breasts, yeah. <laughs> some features, you know, total recall kid, stuff. That, like, that to me felt so mature to see something like that. As an adult, I'm sort of like, oh, they could have maybe like skirted around it. But I felt like I was watching a very grown movie with very, you know, grown animation, mm. seeing that as a kid. I, I love that. I, I think you need a little bit of that to, I don't know, just I mix mean, things it was up. medieval times. It sort of gives it that, that, that rougher vibe. I don't know, especially, I mean, the last unicorn meets this harpy and, and it's not supposed to be a, a beautiful, graceful, delicate creature. It's supposed to kind of be. Mm-hmm. Uh, gruesome and uh, mm-hmm. macabre. Yeah. Grotesque is the word. Yeah. Um, the, the, you know, the movie starts off with a couple of hunters and entering uh, an enchanted forest, essentially, you know, just, just mm-hmm. your run of the mill, uh, uh, you know, garden variety, enchanted medieval forest. And, and they decide, you know, not to stick around because they're not going to find any animals because, you know, animals who inhabit a uh, enchanted forest can learn how to disguise themselves, turn themselves invisible. Uh, and of course, the reason there's able to be an enchanted forest in this, you know, you assume to be like a northerly climate, perhaps it's on Great Britain or something. You know, it's, it's very uh, like a British toned medieval setting. Um, you know, it, it's because there's a unicorn. And of course, the unicorn is the national symbol, like the official uh, state animal of Scotland. <laughs> I don't know if you knew that. I didn't know that. That's cool that they have a, a mythological beast as their national animal. Yeah. I mean, it's just like totally unironic that it's yeah it's like a mythical creature but it's it's their official like symbol as an animal pretty funny uh maybe they're not so mythical maybe they just learned how to turn themselves invisible or you know they went on to the ethereal (laughs) ethereal plane and uh, have to see (laughs) yeah or or in this movie like when you see a unicorn you're just seeing a pretty white horse because Mm. people no longer believe so they're almost like not able to see her magic, right? Yeah, yeah. Some people can't see magic. Uh, some people can't see through magic. A lot of complexity with these magical rules. I love it. I, I just like how well thought out a lot of this very esoteric mythology is. It's sort of like a Tolkien book. Exactly. We were kind of saying that before we started, but it kind of rings true to those books as well as like the Odyssey. She she starts her journey, I mean, pretty much right off the bat with a talking butterfly who kind of speaks in riddles. He speaks in songs, kind of dodges all her questions and then sort of issues this warning that kicks off her quest about all the rest of the unicorns and where they might be in a far off land, you know, taken by a red bull. And that sort of is enough to to get her big journey on its way. Mm. Yeah, very fascinating. Yeah, that butterfly character is something straight out of Alice in Wonderland. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> um, that's one we have to talk about here. I, I hadn't really seen that straight through either. It's one of the, you know, there, we talked about this on Aristocast. There are a few of the classic Disney canon that I just haven't spent a lot of time with. Um, Typically, I wasn't a fan of movies like Alice in Wonderland or characters like this butterfly because I kind of found them like nonsensical. Like I didn't really, 
know what was going on but the older I get the more I sort of realize how it's just like a plot device for sometimes the main character but they are able to drop in you know the wisdom on the way um so maybe I need to retry Alice too because I definitely didn't mind the butterfly this time as much as a kid I was just really obsessed with the unicorn um, herself and uh, Schmedrick, who she meets along the way. It's it's a beautiful design of the unicorn. Like the character model is striking compared to a lot of the other assets you see in the film. Yeah, um, they really did her a great service with her eyes. They're very just like, maybe a cow isn't a good example, but they're very big, very lashed, very... Mm moody and kind of sad you know you can kind of sense something within her um that yeah. it's more than just an animal and i really think that's awesome plus the way her body build makes certain features so small like obviously a, a horse's snout mm. is big and has big nostrils but they really make her a delicate kind of like almost like an upturned nose like uh you know they really yeah. really made her beautiful i mean even before she spoiler alert turns into a human She's she's a gorgeous unicorn. Yeah, like more more deer like in some way, you know. And of course, cows. Like if you really study a cow's face, it, the eyes are just very, like, uh, mm -hmm. you know, beautiful. Like the mesmerizing, you could say, for for an animal. They're, they're just so big and um, and just like these puppy dog eyes. Um, and and you know, uh, we have um, the, the this aesthetic that kind of carries into a lot of modern Japanese animation, which this movie was uh, produced in Japan. The animation was um, there. There's a animation studio. Um, what are, what are we, <laughs> we just had it up. Let's see. But it would eventually be folded into uh, Studio Ghibli. Um, this. Um, yeah. Here, and we're top, both top. huge fans of them, so yeah yeah it's um, no surprise so, that we enjoyed this this animation style in this film here yeah rankin bass frequently worked with japanese production companies um including top craft which they commissioned for the animation you know the the and this is all 2d animation you know even though rankin bass has a lot of those uh stop motion animated specials um but yeah top craft was the um, 2D animation studio. They worked on The Hobbit, formed in 1971 by the film company Toei, uh, or a a, uh, a member, a former member of the film studio Toei, uh, Toru Hara, and he was um, credited as animation supervisor in some of the Rankin Best specials. Um, and then the some of the staff included legends such as Hayao Miyazaki, one of the founders of Studio Ghibli, and uh, that yeah that uh, is eventually where sort of the this legacy this film's legacy leads uh, mm -hmm. amazingly, um, and and you can really see it. Although few characters besides the unicorn herself look like they would belong in a Studio Ghibli film. Yeah, the the character animation I like for the most part. I really I like the hair, I like the noses, I like the the colors, but definitely not as larger than life as you see in later films. Mm -hmm. And I I thought of just kind of how striking you know that that design for the unicorn is. Uh, you know, reading some of 
you know, just the way that this butterfly is, is really overly complimentary towards her. Uh, he's, he's a bit forward, almost, you know, he, he would definitely come off as creepy uh, nowadays. Um. Oh, yeah. I think, I mean, I think you're supposed to like assume he might be on something. Like he's sort of uh, just in his own world. He's, he's eccentric. But, I mean, he, yeah, he's eccentric. But I mean, I prefer him over where she kind of lands herself next. Um, as the movie sort of gets going, she ends up in a carnival. She's captured by a witch, Mama Fortuna, who's yeah. disgusting. Um, and I mean, what you're going to see throughout this movie is like the unicorns, they're very, well, the unicorn, they're kind of almost like coveted and despised for what they are. But what's wild about her being captured and put in with these other sort of monsters of the time and these oddities of the time is like, she sticks a fake unicorn horn on her because even the leader of the carnival doesn't recognize her for what she is. Yeah. She doesn't even realize it's a, it's a real unicorn that came at her. But that's where you sort of start seeing the like more gruesome and crude um animals along the way like you start with the silly butterfly and then you start meeting the rest of the fantastical awkward animals yeah a lot of beasts i guess <laughs> beasts, not animals well uh, yeah there's a, a lot of interesting you know cameos from from a variety of one-off characters that you know are provide a lot of interesting texture to the film but don't have a ton to do they just sort of there's sort of little vignettes along the journey um but then there is sort of a destination where this film eventually lands where we spend a significant amount of time towards the end but the the journey part i mean the I think perhaps the first half of the film was the strongest for me just because I enjoyed going on this quest, mm -hmm. you know, across the land. It's, it's, you know, fairly vague as to what sort of a, a geography we're dealing with. Um, yeah, but... I mean, you see forests and you know you're coming up to some like cliffs and oceans, but it's kind of like it's a nondescript fantasy world. Mm hmm. There's some references to real world um, characters, you know, Robin Hood, you know, is, is a known thing in this world. Um, why is a raven like a writing desk? We have a reference to that line from Lewis Carroll. Um, so de definitely some direct invoking of previous examples of uh, literature. Uh, of course, yeah, this being a 1968 novel. Uh, he, he would definitely, you know, Beagle would have been um, borrowing from those who came before. And he, I, he's a, he was a big admirer of the uh, J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, and, and you can see, I kind of wanted Dawson, you know, to bring some of his Tolkien uh, expertise. This is, <laughs> this is definitely a movie I was hoping Dawson would hop in on because he just seems very well versed in that fantasy yeah. genre. Um, I really I, enjoy it too, but I, I don't have quite the tongue to like describe everything that's coming into it. Um, but I will have to what you said about like the Robin Hood character, the bandit character, because something that really stuck out to me as touching is when this is at the first half of the movie as they're journeying towards the, mm -hmm. the Red Bull residence, I guess you call it, because they're mm -hmm. kind of just they're trying to find the Red Bull at this yeah. point to find the unicorns. Um, and, and you're introduced to Molly, who is the bandit leader's wife. And the, the scene when she realizes that 
the unicorn is a unicorn. Mm. And she's like, I waited for you. I was always waiting for you. And she's almost like mad and frustrated and like Mm. sad all at the same time, because Mm. you know that she was one of those like little girls that like maybe was lonely, maybe was isolated and always dreamed of these beautiful, majestic unicorns, like these life-changing beasts that come through. And now she's like an old maid kind of like clamoring around in the woods. Didn't you think that part was really kind of touching? Yeah, it's a very salient character Mm -hmm. because of, you know, the fact that she is so sort of jaded, disenchanted with the world as so many adults become, you know, rightfully Mm -hmm. so, so, like not all of us, get to live the fantasy lives that were fed by media as a few who kind of do, but even they, you know, the people who get it all you know, realize that that doesn't make them happy. Um, but, but yeah, like if you're this sort of vagrant li- living, living in the woods, Captain Cully is sort of like a, a real world analog, you know, in this film, this film's real world uh, analog of, Robin Hood, uh, who's an admirer of the tale of Robin Hood and, and the sort of myth behind it, but he is sort of the realistic embodiment of that archetype. And uh, the reality is that these guys are constantly hungry and cold, living in the woods. It's dirty. probably burping, <laughs> like probably farting. Like honestly, the, the not romanticism a, is yeah, not quite... something fun for Molly if she dreamed of an enchanting life yeah how do you reconcile these romantic tales with the life that you're forced to (laughs) to reckon with you know once the fantasy is over and you have to get back to washing (laughs) surviving (laughs) right exactly but she ends up continuing on with them and um schmedrick who comes from the carnival he's sort of like a magician schmedrick is actually a word that means like not bumbling idiot, but kind of just like, like a burg- like, like a fiddle fingers. No, a schmedrick, the, the magician. Oh, oh I, his, yeah. His name means, I'm not sure what the word schmedrick means, but it's something like, you know, like a bumble, a bumble, like he's kind of always tripping all over everything. That's, that's a word. Yeah. A I think it, it might be a German word. I'm not sure. Well, I have this fact up here from the ever uh, <laughs> definitive IMDb trivia page. No, well, that too. I mean, that's that's like the gold standard. IMDb is like the the silver. (laughs) No, um, let's see. The word Schmendrick, the name of the inept magician, voiced by Alan Arkin, is according to this based on the Yiddish slang word schlemiel. Oh, Yiddish. Uh, yeah. Which means unlucky. Okay, un- he, I first read this as unlucky burglar. It's unlucky bungler. Yeah, bungler. So kind of just this guy who's sort of always fumbling his way through, but he also does have real power. Uh, I, I like him as a character. I think he could have been even more so bumbly, but yeah. um, I like the three of them as, as they go together. I had burglar on the mind because they're constantly referring to Bilbo in the Hobbit movie as he's the burglar. We need a burglar <laughs> because they, they need him to infiltrate the dragon's lair to, you know, retrieve the Arkenstone or whatever. <laughs> so, See, if Dawson was here, he would have cleared it up real quick for us. Exactly. He, he knows all the facts. Um, yeah. Yeah. The, it, 
so that is an odd legacy with those animated Lord of the Rings films, as I'd referenced earlier. And I, I just pulled up some updated information on that, which is where um, that Hobbit film was released in 1977. And then an unrelated production company, you know, Ralph Bakshi Films produced The Lord of the Rings, which is based on the first two novels in Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring and The Two Towers. Um, and then independently of that, Rankin Bass planned their own Lord of the Rings adaptation as a sequel to The Hobbit, but it mainly pulled from the events of the third film in the trilogy, or the third novel in the trilogy, uh, The Return of the King. So it just sort of happened that <laughs> you have this complete trilogy of animated feature-length films, two of which are TV specials, and I believe the Bakshi film was theatrically released, um, but they, they now kind of form this cohesive uh, animated canon of The Lord of the Rings and probably fit together quite well, which then the reason why I'm saying this, is it, this would be fun to revisit as, as like a trilogy, because uh, I think mm -hmm. they now all fall under the same company. I believe they, they're all owned or the license to these films are all owned by the same company. So they have been released as like a package um, bundle um, but, or marketed as such, even though, you know, the two bookends are produced by the same company. And then the middle chapter is a completely different company, a very different art style, but it just sort of fills in the gap where the other two you know, left off. Um, very fast. It's kind of like the Star Wars sequel trilogy, you know, where J.J. Abrams directed the first, you know, episode seven and episode nine. And it was a completely different writer or director on the on episode eight. Um, <laughs> yeah, they need to not do that. <laughs> they need yeah. to find a consistent thread and follow it. But sometimes it's kind of fun just to see the differences and the similarities and just, I don't know, use your imagination to fill in the gaps, as it were. Um, but thankfully we now have, you know, the, the Peter Jackson films and, you know, the, even the Hobbit films were a little bit controversial because of how bloated they were. And they, you know, they took this, you know, what was the much less extensive prequel to the Lord of the Rings and, and turned it into a film saga that was just as, uh, ex extensive as the Lord of the Rings films, and it just it, it kind of wore on people. I don't know. Did you see the live action Hobbit films? Yeah, I did. I like I was kind of saying before we started this conversation. I was never really like big into the genre at all. Only more so now that I'm older. Um, so I did see them, but I wasn't as like entwined with the detail of it all. I was sort of like there mm -hmm. for the popcorn and like thought, obviously they're not like bad movies, but I would have to honestly revisit them to like have real thoughts. You yeah. Know what I, mean? I think they're worth seeing. And I think people will probably be softer on them, you know, as, as time goes on, just because like, it's, it's fun to live in these crazy worlds. This may be a little bit too much computer animation. That's not you know, not quite as immersive as just the glorious practical effects that they used in the, you know, the original 
uh, Lord of the Rings trilogy from Peter Jackson, like those movies just Mm -hmm. went out of their way to get so many elements that, you know, you know, in camera captured in camera and then composited, you know, using, you know, break or um, groundbreaking technology at the time. And then of course now as computer animation has gotten more realistic, you know, they kind of just went overboard with, with the Hobbit films. Um, And, and yeah, so I don't know, maybe in the future, I would put those on sort of like how, you know, you might put on a fantasy series, you know, if people rewatching like Game of Thrones or something, you know, it's, it's this epic TV series length uh, experience that, um, you know, you just kind of save for a rainy day. Um, but oh, yeah, perfect. it's a rainy day here. <laughs> Yeah, with the with the last unicorn, of course, it's you know, animated films like this are hard to, you know, extend too long in terms of runtime. This one is ninety some minutes, I think. Um, if that it's, to me, it's the perfect length. I, I wasn't ever, and maybe it was just because today was a dreary kind of day. Like it was sort of the right day to watch something like this, but I never kind of felt like in a rush to move it on because I I felt like they kind of were constantly exploring different themes. And I used to always think the second half was boring, like once Mm. she was human, because obviously as a kid, I loved seeing a unicorn, like adventuring Mm -hmm. out. Um, But now as an adult, I really liked getting to know her as Athena, Alphena, as as her human form. I really, really fell into that half a lot more than I had before. Yeah, a cool 92 minutes, I see. 92, that's the perfect um, amount. Certified is rated G by the MPAA, or now just the MPA, Motion Picture. Uh, <laughs> what does it stand for? I can't remember if, it, uh, if they changed it. It used to be the Motion Picture Association of America, and, and now it just might be the Motion Picture Association, although they, they might have even tweaked it a little bit um that that name she's given that schmendrick comes athena. up with on the fly it sounds like athena it's similar and it's derived from greek mythology um amalthia or amalthia lady amalthia. A- yep a-m-a-l-t-h-e-a uh, comes from greek mm-hmm. mythology and um Z- zeus and it was yeah it was somewhat of an accident, her becoming a human. That was never really the goal, but Schmedrick being not so, I guess, talented or as as focused as a magician. Like he sort of accidentally turns her into this thing and he actually feels like a lot of regret for it because like as a human, she's sort of like totally disconnected from her former self and it's like a real trauma to her, which as a kid, I never really thought about, but like, can you imagine being turned into like a goat like i mean it's it's kind of like emperor's new groove here except for like the reverse so yeah um, yeah it's a it's not like the little mermaid where she wanted to become human like she wanted to be a unicorn she didn't she wasn't like looking for a prince like she was just going to try to find more like her yeah we have stories of characters um transforming into things oh gosh there, there's been so many lately uh, luca is is interesting because oh, yeah. he mm-hmm. naturally can do that 
um, uh, soul turns into a soul. I mean, it's not the yeah. exact same, but there's a, there's a physical turns into transformation. A <laughs> yeah, there we go. There's some type of transformation like that. Or the swap souls with a cat, I guess you could say. Um, yeah, I'm trying to, th- yeah, and yeah, it's just, I guess in Raya, you have the dragon who can turn human once she acquires a certain power. Um, Sisu. Sisu, yeah. Um, but Sisu. but here, yeah, this this didn't strike me as cliche at all, um, you know, in any way. No. It, because um, you really feel the stakes of this creature discovering humanity for the first time and how right. different it is. Uh, they and really I, create her. Oh, sorry. Go I was ahead. Just yeah. Say, go- like they really, they really, they really create like a sense of help, helplessness. Like, like most things. I mean, she's turned into a human, but they, they, she's nude, which just kind of like just shows how like ill-equipped she is because she's literally now like entering the world as a human who's never really had to feel like human Mm -hmm. emotion. She's super fragile and I mean, beautiful, but what a terrifying like moment. And, um, and, and then the villain being so villainous, um, King Haggard, I know we haven't really talked Mm -hmm. about him a lot, but, but he's, he's a creepy one. And she knows that she's going to encounter them, Mm -hmm. you know, now as this fragile human woman. Yeah, he was foreshadowed at the beginning. I think didn't the butterfly even mm-hmm. mention his name, Haggard? <laughs> Interesting. I mean, that's just a literal term for of how he looks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They didn't. They didn't think too much. They're like, all right, what's his appearance, Haggard? All right, there we go. And he has like an adopted son. And I don't know if I didn't listen close enough, but is there a story behind the son being adopted, or is that something that the book itself maybe went into? detail of but it's not his real son right no he just said that a peasant left the baby on a doorstep well how very kind of him to raise him because i mean that wouldn't be something that everyone Mm -hmm. would probably do and he talks about and and like this haggard is a nuanced villain he's not like a very overly uh charismatic you know disney style villain Mm -mm. um he's he's subdued for the most part uh, there are a few times he gets to kind of cut loose, thankfully, because he's voiced by Christopher Lee, who's just such a, you know, incredible performer. You know, he's just got that big vo- booming voice that you'd want him to really uh, unleash at some point <laughs> during the performance. Uh, I don't know. And you would recognize him from the Lord of the Rings. He played Sauron. Yeah. The, the old white wizard who, uh, turns bad (laughs) turns bad and i mean haggard is actually bad himself because like this is when you sort of find out that the unicorns are trapped sort of for his own benefit because unicorns are the the only thing that makes him happy and he's sort of like hoarding them away as his own collection in the ocean i guess that's sort of the gist of it this yeah this king this lord i think they refer to him as a king sometimes or the lord sometimes you know this whatever. ruler the ruler mm-hmm. uh, and he uh you know, talking about the arbitrary nature of of <laughs> of rule and uh power but in in like medieval times but also this character is so um in battle and, and like uh just desperate for 
fulfillment in life and he's always chasing and striving just like any you know person who's given over to a spirit of of greed essentially mm-hmm. and he even said like raising this child was something he thought that would perhaps give him happiness and peace and it did for a little while but that eventually faded he says outright so that was very Bummer. Bummer yeah for prince lear Honestly, though, like, like Lear couldn't care less because the second like he sees her as a human, he's like, oh, there she is, like the one I've been waiting for. And he like instantly falls in love with her. Yeah, no, it's, uh, you know, it's not so bad because, you know, Lear seems like a, a normal dude. And yeah, he's kind of almost like, in my opinion, nondescript. He grows on me because he really like once he realizes that she is a a unicorn in a human body like he kind of encourages her to continue her quest he doesn't I know in typical Disney fact like in a typical Disney movie you might see him be like but I love you and now now it can be you and I and we'll save the unicorns together but he really seems to be like encouraging her to pursue it which I thought was was good yeah I mean he's he's a selfless dude he goes on quests you know to he like slays a dragon as a token of his uh affection for her trying to win her heart of course this isn't really gonna work because it's like oh what are you doing killing this immortal creature that uh you know perhaps has more of a right to be on this earth than than even you do mm-hmm. um but you know yeah being human you know makes uh an impression on her enough to where she almost forgets what it's like to be a unicorn or she at least, you know, adjusts pretty fully to this newfound humanity to where she does eventually fall for him, uh, which is interesting, but yeah, this this very desolate dreary environment where they spend a lot of this film at this, um, this castle (laughs) and it's, uh, it's just interesting how how layered it can be where yeah he haggard could be looked at as sort of a conventional villain but he's he's sort of not at the same he's just sort of like a conventional medieval king who sits on a throne but deep down he has these these demons or, or these like addictions that drive him to do destructive things like a lot of people do yeah. when they're in power I mean, it's really easy. They say there is, this is kind of off topic, but you know, power and money kind of sometimes go hand in hand Mm -hmm. and that there's a certain amount of money that as you gain, it makes you happier and happier and happier. And then I think it's like when you hit this range of money, that money no longer brings you that chemical in your brain. Like money can no longer make you happy anymore because you already have enough to fulfill your needs, your wants. So you need something else. Okay. You can't have money. So if, okay, now I want control. And then there's a certain amount of control where that, that chemical turns off. So it's like, you're almost <laughs> always chasing the next fix in a way. And I mean, seeing it in this, you see it in real life all the time, but I mean, it, yeah. in this movie, he's you a kinda... great example of that because he should just yeah. enjoy his kingdom by the sea. I mean, he can play with that big red bull out there, the fire bull or hang out with his son, but instead he chooses to kind of be, you see it in his appearance too, just how drawn and skeletal he is. It's just like the life has just sort of left him 
And now the only satisfaction yeah. he gets from life is by staring out at the sea, which is- You almost weird. feel sorry for him because <laughs> oh, it's yeah. like, he could have, you, I mean, you do feel sorry for him. You do feel sorry for people like this because it's like, you have everything. Like Molly will trade you. She doesn't want to do dishes in the middle of the woods, but- I don't know. Red Bull, you think of the energy drink <laughs> and how everyone's hooked on caffeine in, you know, <laughs> today's society. Do you think there's any like connection between why they called it Red Bull or maybe Red Bull is just just like a very energetic, masculine uh, yeah, yeah, it's, a, it's a it's very much a symbol of power. You know, the bowl, you know, you talk about Wall Street and things mm -hmm. like that. And the color red, I mean, that's energy, that's that's heat, that's mm -hmm. fire, that's control, power, yeah. Um, yeah. And yes. I mean, it's a scary animation. Let's let's talk a little bit about this Red Bull because it gave me nightmares as a kid. There's two, there's three things in this movie that were nightmare inducing for me. The harpy, the little talking skeleton who's drinking oh. fake wine, and then the Red mm. Bull. He is vicious and he mm. is like giant. I mean, in this, it, in the feel mm -hmm. of it because he's so bright in this really kind of like dull morbid gray tone mm -hmm. area yeah and yeah very mysterious too because mm -hmm. he, he's clearly not this like fully physical manifestation and he's blind, right like he the bull i i yeah. don't i yeah yeah maybe he doesn't he's sensitive to like the presence of the unicorns i'm look okay. i looked this up okay so the red bull blind but powerful sensitive to the presence of unicorns and tries to intimidate them into submission by kind of like following their energy and driving it towards the sea okay. and his affiliation with king Havard is not they don't really explain why he hmm. is under the power of king Haggard, but yeah their souls perhaps are just they both intertwined. end together yeah that's yeah. kind of what it's saying here they both come to a demise um so, spoiler alert when the last <laughs> unicorn stands up to the red bull yeah i uh it's yeah i think very, you're right maybe their souls their souls mm -hmm. very metaphorical and there's some things there are plenty of things i missed <laughs> during this watch through you've only seen it once you're, uh, you're gonna watch this again aren't you at some point i think yeah. on a rainy day you're gonna want to watch this one again yeah yeah this is one for the, the rotation for sure um and i mean rank and best like most of their uh, productions were tv specials there were uh, on this list maybe two two other traditionally animated theatrical films the wacky world of mother goose and the king and i which was co-produced with morgan creek productions in 1999 was that animated yeah yeah 2d oh animated. i've never never seen it there's some stop motion animated films uh willie mcbean and his magic machine from 1965 the daydreamer from 1966 and mad monster party from 1967 uh, and these, I think a lot of these perhaps have sequences intercut with live action photography as well. So not straight through stop motion animation necessarily, at least the daydreamers like that based on what I saw. Um, and, and I don't know if the wacky world of mother goose from 1967 is like that as well. Sort of like a package picture. Um, there's, well, well, of course it would be a series of different, mother goose you know uh nursery rhymes fairy tales whatever you want to call them uh interspersed throughout um 
and then the king and i based on the like the musical um so yeah the, the last unicorn is sort of a unicorn unicorn <laughs> in terms of its existence on the the slate of films from the studio it's not like you know the don bluth productions or uh, uh ralph bakshi uh, what were some other animation houses from this era? Nelvana. Well, they they really didn't do much either in terms of like theatrical. They their attempt was that movie Rock and Roll, which which I love. Like, but it's barely been seen, uh, and I just sort of got Dawson to uh, hop on an episode on a whim last year to talk about it. This sort of like rock opera musical made in canada uh that that barely was able to achieve like a a viewable cut um because and there are several different versions that exist with different cast you know with certain different like audio recordings and sequences and things uh so so yeah i mean animation is just so tricky it's so um difficult to achieve that you know unless you're a company like disney that has that built-in pipeline um it is hard to to maintain a steady stream of a good uh quality yeah quality content um and i'm just trying they can so easily come off as kind of clunky or kind of corny i feel like Mm -hmm. like there's just sort of especially when adults and children are watching them it's like it's kind of like this fine line with animation i don't know if you remember like rock a doodle or like penguin and the pebble yeah that that i don't remember what studio those ones came out of but i've rewatched them and they they don't oh that is bloof yeah they don't hold this to me they don't hold the same Mm -hmm. magic that this does you know this this the last unicorn wasn't some like cheap cash in. You can kind of feel like not that those other ones were, but you can really tell the people involved with this project were really kind of trying to say something. And unlike mm-hmm. other series of adventures, um, Vivo might be there's like oh, you know yeah. Vivo, he's going on a series of adventures. Sometimes it kind of gets ground down with repetition, like okay, mm-hmm. this, then this, then this. But I feel like the the good thing about Last Unicorn is it's it sort of deepens as it goes. I mean, you start with the escape and then you know maybe it's her turning into the human but it's like each step of the way does feel like there's more of a this mm-hmm. true nature within the animal this like revival of the spirit and again just like fighting that isolation that not only she felt but i mean spednik smeknerik whatever and the <laughs> other people feel and i i think it's really spednik smeknerik uh yeah schmendrik uh, odd the, odd the, name for the a yiddish word yeah <laughs> Who spends so much time? Not you know, something I say so much often. time with this character, but like he's just such a an odd dude. <laughs> but it's great because he's an odd dude. It's unconventional. Mm-hmm, it's unconventional, and and they all really flow together. I think really well, and I, I think those voices that were trying to be saying something like they're they're heard in that, and it's really I don't know if you took the time to look through other people's reviews at all. Sometimes I have a chance to like hop on and like on Metacritic or um, Rotten Tomatoes, you know, things like that. And a lot of people, and like, I didn't see this watching it with my eyes, but just the transformation and finding yourself. And I mean, a lot of things went on and on about feminism, obviously kind of just tapping in to her 
Mm. just discovering herself and like also like choosing to go back to what she had and just like the power of choice and blah 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 it's really interesting all the different ways people took this journey I, I thought it was really cool looking over the reviews but financially was it a success I know like it was received really well but did you read anywhere if they yeah well I made I some think... money off of this story well it it definitely got a positive critical reception so whether or not the theatrical run made money it's showing six and a half million dollars in the u.s box office which probably was a profit at the time this probably was made for five million dollars at the most um i I don't think i've seen a budget anywhere Um, that seems like a really low budget but but i guess it was the 70s back then yeah that was yeah uh, you know yeah the i guess this would have began production sometime in the 70s and uh, as of 2020, this film has a 73% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> it's one of the first uh, examples of criticism of this film, a uh, positive criticism, mm-hmm. is uh, from New York Times' Janet Maslin, who called The Last Unicorn an unusual children's film in many respects, the chief one being that it is unusually good. Oh, that if there is going to be a negative review, that is the one I would like because it's positive. She's throwing the rest of children's animation under the bus. Yeah, that's true. She's got to listen to the podcast to hear the positives about all the other movies. I wonder what she thought of Aristocats. But no, I mean, the, the Disney style, of course, is so much more like realistic lifelike like the characters have more dimension a lot of it is animated on ones you know a thing of drawing per frame very little of this film would have been a single drawing per frame um most likely animated on twos and threes you know where you know the, the frame rate is essentially um 12 frames per second if not fewer um but the the drawings are are quite you know, top notch, I would say. I mean, some of the character designs like from from the studio that aren't the unicorn or not Malthea um, are kind of odd. I don't know if you call them uncanny or what, but it's it's unique. It's its own thing. I, I would compare the sort of aesthetic of the characters in some of these films like The Hobbit and uh, the last unicorn uh, as resembling the the trolls but not the dreamworks trolls i feel like, like the, it's the hair the yeah toys. i know exactly i know exactly like the sunken in about. eyes you know uh-huh and i the, don't i don't eyes. mind it it's the hair it's the hair and the hair too of course yeah i and i mean i get sort of like shaggy vibes you know hanna barbera of course a big animation production company not so much um theatrical but a uh, lot of TV and, and you know, I kind of get, yeah, like shaggy from Scooby-Doo vibes with Schmendrick, <laughs> which is kind of fun. You know, he's sort of just this, you know, they call him the runeless wonder. That's what uh, Mama Fortuna calls him. Or wait, no, uh, Mabrook, this other uh, wizard, um, Haggard's former wizard <laughs> who, uh, gets sacked 
and then departs. He's like, oh, you're trading me for the, the runeless wonder. <laughs> the runeless uh, wonder. I guess, you know, runes being a, a source of magic used by wizards and, you know, it just gets into all the esoteric lore of arcane wisdom and, and knowledge <laughs> um, pulled from a lot of medieval fantasy sources. Um, and yeah, it's, I mean, it's a fascinating subject because you can just develop all sorts of rules for how a magical system ought to work and not be like overly convenient to the plot or be detrimental to telling a, a coherent story. Um, and it essentially boils down to the fact that magic, even though it can be convenient in a pinch, it can also be very unpredictable, uncontrollable, you know, used for evil. Uh, pe people can, I don't know, use technology to overpower it, things like that. It's, uh, it, it's interesting how they portray Schmendrick's use of magic in this film as something that he has to like surrender himself to. And, and he, he sort of does the Elsa thing. He has to just let go and let the magic work through him as this sort of uh, conduit. Vessel. Yeah. 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 I didn't make that comparison, but it's, it's true. He has to kind of let that be the guide. Uh, seems like every time someone has powers, it's sort of like that. I mean, I know you're not a mm -hmm. Harry Potter person, but like they have to sort of let it control. Yeah. And I guess the more they practice with it, then that's where the control element comes in. You just have to, over time, get better at managing that, that flow of power uh, and directing it, you know, the, the, the wand, you know, in Harry Potter's symbol of, or, you know, in, in any kind of fantasy, you know, their magicians will carry a tool or a wand that allows them to direct magic where they want it to go. And it's just a symbol for how um, you don't, if you're resorting to magic, uh, it can be very difficult to control. So you want to have some means of at least mitigating that. Unless you're a unicorn, then your, your horn tool works just fine the first time. <laughs> you like got a wand was, built she in. Was able to, she was able to save someone without even blinking her eyes or trying, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, she, well, she uh, wasn't able to overcome Mama Fortuna's power, was she? Um, oh. How did that all work out? I, Gosh, I, well, I mean, he, the, har the harpy escapes and there's sort of this, yeah. this kerfuffle. And I think the harpy then... Schmendrick stole that key. Yes, okay, right. yep. Yeah. Um, but yeah, was it the... She does revive Prince Lear at the end. Mm -hmm. So that's as all amazing. as all true royal princesses do. Entangled, she like cries on him and Sleeping Beauty, you know, like it seems in the in the storybook of Sleeping Beauty, it's like the man sacrifices, but then like the woman can like bring him back to life somehow. Yeah. So the kind of a a Disney parallel with this fairy tale. Um, the animation looks very different. It's not as fluid, but it's still impressive. Um, a lot of elements that are 
you know, cer certainly not a lack for moving elements on screen. It's just they don't quite move in the same way. And the, the design of a lot of the characters is, you know, is very unique compared to sort of modern conventional animation. Um, but but the unicorn herself, uh, you can definitely see some of the parallels between her design and, you know, um, anime and sort of mm -hmm. modern. Um, yeah, My Little Pony. <laughs> Oh, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. There, you know, there's really not to like get us off topic, but there is a really old My Little Pony animated movie as well. That That's yeah. It's like I think it may also be 80s because as soon as you said that, I, I had this flash of like memory. Mm -hmm. Those characters probably had those big fluttery eyes. You know, um, when when drawing a horse, I suppose it makes sense you'd stick to a certain pattern you know disney has a lot of horses in its films as well um i don't know who's the but, best and who's the best animated horse <laughs> philippe bell's horse oh, i yeah. love philippe she kind of she really nuzzles they really like have his nose and his face and he he goes out with papa or whatever in the woods philippe's a really good one um mm. i can't think of another one like right off the top of my head but when i do think of like disney horses i do think mm. of philippe Okay. There's Philippe. There's, I think, Khan is the horse in Mulan. There's, um, oh, yeah. Oh, uh, Maximilian. Oh, Max. Yes, Maximus Entangled. Maximus. He is a very animated horse. He, that whole movie, I mean, all the characters <laughs> are very animated, but he like nibbles on carrots and he just like, he, he's kind of like Sven um, mm -hmm. with his mannerisms. Like he's almost human. Mm -hmm. whereas Philippe is definitely a horse horse you know what I mean like he acts like a horse he walks like a horse Maximus is like a humanized horse mm -hmm. yeah this isn't my idea I still I've I'm stealing it from uh, another podcast but somebody you know uh, came up with the idea that Disney should have a horse's product line <laughs> oh be. gosh they they do have like something similar it's called like princess pets oh. um and it's it, i don't know if they ever made like a a show series of it but they definitely have a toy line of princess pets so they've already tapped into like animals and princesses for sure mm. i do want a cc they're not plushie. letting any money they're not letting any money out the door i would love a cc plushie so we do character events that have nothing huh. to do like with actual disney but we had an off-brand version of the human version of sisu oh. and the hair like the wig the costume the mannerism she was such an amazing actress um i i love sisu oh, and i would love the dragon version plushie of a sisu hmm. i like her in human and dragon form and i love hmm. the little the the last unicorn in human and unicorn form yeah, well are you um, yeah, this is a pretty um, impressive cast, and I, you know the vocal performance uh, for the Last Unicorn. The character is is very, you know, adept. It's it's uh, Mia Farrow, famous actress, uh, formerly married to Woody Allen, and of course that's been sort of a trending topic lately with the recent HBO documentary, uh, the um alan Ver pharaoh versus alan or alan versus pharaoh 
Um, did you see that or hear about it, Jody? Mm-mm, not yet. No. Yeah. The controversy, of course, a uh, very famous case of Woody Allen being accused yet staunchly denying, oh. you know, okay. yeah, the um, a- allegations of, of child molestation, but um, yeah, just she was perfect choice to play this very ethereal character. Yeah, eldest daughter of Australian director John Farrow and Irish actress Maureen O'Sullivan. So yeah, very famous parents. Uh, Grew up in Beverly Hills. Not a bad place to grow up. Mm -hmm. I'd probably be very gentle and sweet. Well, actually, no, that's you. You've lived in California. Just because you (laughs) live in California doesn't mean it's all like sunshine and roses. Yeah. I think she, she currently lives on the East Coast. Um, you, you get to see like her residence in this documentary, spends a lot of time with her. Um, yeah, it's very, very interesting. Let's see. And, and then the, the rest of the cast here, we, we have Alan Arkin, a famous comedic actor uh, playing Schmendrick. Jeff Bridges, of course, Prince Lear, not King Lear, Prince Lear. Christopher Lee as Haggard. Uh, Angela Lansbury as Mama Fortuna. Uh, So, yeah, uh, impressive cast. And uh, I heard that nobody who was approached to be part of the, the vocal cast declined. Like everyone who was asked was very eager about being part of this movie when they were introduced to sort of the the story itself, which is, that's exciting knowing you're working with a full cast of people who are excited about the project. So yeah, they got a great lineup and it sounds like everyone was eager to be, you know, a little piece of that big, big story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, um, I, I don't know how big of a phenomenon this book was upon its release or what kind of life I, I don't follow literature that closely. Of course, this was back in the 60s when the novel was originally released. But I imagine these books you know, would come out and it would sort of go viral like a lot of media does nowadays. You know, sometimes books like the Harry Potter series or Twilight, <laughs> uh, Fifty Shades of Grey. Oh, um, <laughs> you know, you get those breakout sensations. Um, and I, I'm guessing Blast Unicorn was kind of a an award-winning novel along those lines, or at least I, I'm guessing it was um, critically acclaimed as well as commercially successful. Uh, and then Peter Beagle, in the process of wanting to get it adapted to film, you know, had you know grand ambitions in mind. But the last people he really considered to do it were the Rankin Bass Company. <laughs> I think when he first learned that his producer signed a deal with Rankin Bass, he was mortified <laughs> because he didn't want oh. Rudolph the Red Nosed Va- Reindeer rendition of The Last Unicorn. <laughs> I think he was afraid oh, that it would be. Oh, I could. Yeah, I can see why that would be scary. That's why he probably needed his hands in the cookie dough uh, when they were doing yeah. the scripting and, and the project, right? Yeah, exactly. But um, I think, 
he got to know the directors, Jules Bass and Arthur Rankin Jr., the founders of Rankin Bass. And uh, they, they were amenable to working with him. And he wrote the screenplay uh, and, and ultimately, yeah, the found that the work that um, this, um, <laughs> I can't keep forgetting their name, the Japanese production company Topcraft, uh, you know, was, was turning out some good work. So in the end, uh, you have this, this very special, very symbolically rich, thematically rich film uh, that will go down as, as one of cinema's classics um, and, and really doesn't have a lot of other legacy um, outside of the, this sole film. Like there wasn't an immediate follow-up from the studio. Topcraft would fold um, a few years later. It was kind of a rough period for animation in general. Yeah, maybe it just wasn't clicking with audiences yet that it was an mm -hmm. art. And like, um, oh gosh, my brain is starting to slow down because it's 930. Oh, yeah, but, totally. but, you know, like, I think maybe as, as animation started coming out, people weren't always sure how to receive it. But, mm -hmm. you know, if a movie were to come out now like this, I think it would be really, really well well received all right i'm starting to repeat my words no uh we're, we're wrapping it up but um also in this era just costs had risen a lot uh, you know cost of living and um paying the you know the staff who work on these films it just and the demand wasn't quite there television actually was such a big blow to theatrical animation um and of course having to produce animation on a television budget and schedule was just drastically different from, you know, what, what you would traditionally um, uh, embark upon for film. Um, so it just, it really threw a wrench in things and uh, that there were studios that were able to make the transition successfully and others that, you know, just really stuck to their guns with film like Disney and even Disney, had considered uh, shutting down their animation production wing at times during this era as well. I mean, it got that bad uh, under like uh, Ron Miller, E. Carden Walker. Uh, and then Eisner came in. He was like, absolutely not. We're not, you know, putting an end to animation, even though he had advisors saying that that might be inevitable. Mm -hmm. uh, but thankfully, you know, there was, of course, the Ron and John duo, uh, you know, directors who made Little Mermaid, Great Mouse Detective, Aladdin, who were able to to steady things. Yeah, Howard, they kicked us back into it. Yeah, Howard Ashman, Alan Menken with the music, um, but also home video. I think that was really the ace in the hole. Yep, so that they could go relive this over and over again, and they really captured the audience mm -hmm. yeah i think the explosion yeah, in their own homes you know like you, mm -hmm. you no longer have to like drag your kids out to a theater to experience this you know mm -hmm. but they were able to bring that magic into the house and relive it over and over yeah and television of course very limited at this time few uh, networks and cable was just in its infancy um so like yeah the 
late 80s, early 90s were primed for an explosion in new opportunities for uh, artists and studios to create um, all kinds of animated projects. And you, you just had that explosion, you know, once home media became a thing. Uh, pretty fascinating. Um, thank goodness. Um, but yeah, this, the, ninth, the early 1980s, known as sort of the, the dark time of uh, theatrical animated film production. Uh, and of course, this was the era of like Fox and the Hound, um, the Black Cauldron, you know, sim similar uh, aesthetic, certainly to the Black Cauldron uh with the with this uh this film the last unicorn i mean the the king haggard reminds me heavily of that character the horned king from the black cauldron um and then like a lot of ralph bakshi films had sort of medieval what do i want to say i've <laughs> not repeat the same words over and yeah, over I was gonna again say it's contagious. <laughs> yeah had all the vibes all the vibes in the world and with that, I think we'll we'll wrap it up here. Um, yeah, no, it's it's fascinating to just take a look back at at this era when pop culture was just about to really hit its stride in terms of what we know it today. Um, you know, now nowadays with our world of conventions and even what you do, the, the cosplay events. Uh -huh. um, and of course, the ubiquity of social media and mass media on our phones. Um, there, there definitely was, there have been, been a lot of transitional periods throughout this, you know, metamorphosis within the industry. Uh, it's, it's really fun to examine just how that came into place. Um, but yeah, a lot of, a lot of television uh, animation it was perhaps a bit more prominent at this time um and then a few examples of really standout works like the last unicorn and um and then you would see like don bluth with the secret of nim which was also right around this time 1983 i think or if, if not 81 i could have those dates confused um but yeah uh star wars right right around this time you know star trek of course the 1960s series really throwing the genre uh this you know sci-fi genre and and fantasy as well you know into the stratosphere uh kicking off things like sci-fi conventions and the modern convention nerd culture which this which is uh where i derived my passion for wanting to do a podcast <laughs> Uh, my love of Star Wars and animation and films. Um, and of course, uh, tracing roots back to, uh, to Tolkien, Lord of the Rings as well. Mm -hmm. um, so with that, um, stay tuned for more Rankin-Bass coverage on the Thodcast, hopefully with uh, some things like The Hobbit and The uh, Return of the King. Thank you so much, Jody, for joining me on this episode. It was really fun visiting this for the first time. Sort of, uh, I don't know, if we, did we mention this during the episode or was it during our sort of pre-show preamble? It, it, you know, yeah, we the, really had to warm up today. <laughs> the Last Unicorn. It's, it, it's got kind of a girly title. It's like one of those, like, The Princess Bride. Girly mm -hmm. title, but 
really badass movie. Yeah, there's darkness, there's some violence, there's no blood, but like could be blood, you know. It it is definitely not a girl only movie. It is it's a fantasy for everyone, boys, girls, the the mix, the works. Absolutely. Uh anything else you want to say before we sign off? No, I'm just, I'm pleased we got to see this. And I hope that anyone listening who hasn't seen it, I'm not sure if you'd listen as if you haven't seen it, but I, I hope you'll check it out because a movie like this is really going to stick with you. Um, and if you have kids, I mean, it's probably not one I'd recommend for the littlest, littlest ones, but, mm. but it's, it's enchanting. So, so give it a try. I think it's on Amazon prime right now streaming. Yeah. That's where I found it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I didn't have to pay to watch it if you know as a subscriber, mm-hmm. but um, yeah, otherwise you can also probably worth... find it on YouTube if you had to, or you can support it and buy it because it's probably only like three dollars. Pick up the Blu-ray, yeah, it's definitely one for the collection. Um, yeah, and then yeah, interesting learning of the the connection to Studio Ghibli and things like that. Fascinating. Um, <clears throat> thank you all so much for listening to the Thoughtcast. Thank you, Jody. Um, you can find the Thoughtcast at Thoughtcast on Twitter and Instagram. We're streaming on SoundCloud, Spotify, uh, iTunes, and Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, um, etc. And uh, Thoughtcast.com. Jody, do you want to mention any social media? Yeah. Well, no, sure. Yeah. If you guys are on Instagram, that's primarily where I'm at. And I've dropped that one before, but I've become kind of a TikToker. And I guess that's embarrassing when you're about to be 30. No, but nice. if you want to see kind of what I do for a job and just like the, the characters I work with, um, you can follow me on TikTok. And I don't even know my name off the bat, but I do have like almost 200,000 followers. So like, I must be sort of interesting, <laughs> but it's Jody Pulaski, J-O-D-I. Pulaski, P-O-L-A-S-K-Y 47. And it's, it's a lot of character like content. So if you're into cosplay or you're into like kids entertainment, um, that's where you can kind of check me out lately. Awesome. Yeah. I uh, find me Philip Elke at Philip Elke on Twitter and Instagram. And uh, I just didn't mention the uh, lady Amalthea. It's a little bit like uh, the fifth spirit Elsa. <laughs> <laughs> I, the blonde oh, hair. you know what i'm very happy we're end capping it with that because i meant to say that at the beginning i was gonna say philip i knew you liked this movie because she's kind of glowing she has oh. that alabaster skin her hair is flowing um of course you're very like right mm-hmm. <laughs> she's gorgeous she looks honestly just like my friend heather coy so that's annoying for me because she's perfect but yeah. <laughs> or actually you know what i think heather's been on here before so if you're a longtime listener you may have yeah. heard her um, when we talked about Cruella. Yeah, together. well, yeah, she was on the show uh, yeah, on uh, the mm-hmm. Cruella episode. Oh, my gosh. Uh, want, want, definitely got to have her back sometime. Um, this also was a stealth musical <laughs> we didn't mention. There, oh, of course, it's, the a, mu- it's a rock opera with songs by um, the, the band America, you know, famous for such hits as um, Sister with Golden Hair. A horse with no name, a very appropriate considering this film, uh, and Ventura Highway, uh, but also with some songs sung by characters, but not until like the latter half of the movie. It's kind of surprising. Sorry, not to get into a tangent right at, as we're wrapping up, but uh, 
I just thought that was, it got my adrenaline back up again. The, the, the music wasn't something we really discussed. And of course, the, you know, thinking about Elsa and similar, uh, you know, design and you know, the way in which, you know, so much of her character revolves around music and, and singing. Um, but I, I don't know if Mia Farrow did the singing in this, perhaps. Um, it was a bit different feel to, you know, the the balladic uh, tones of Idina Menzel, but uh, still interesting and not quite, you know, what you would expect from a, a modern day musical, but uh, that, that sort of Broadway aesthetic that we now get from Disney movies um, really wasn't in vogue until, like, you you had Macon and Ashman come on to um, the, the Little Mermaid, you know, with Aristocats, which we covered just recently. You had uh, Scales and Arpeggios, and Everybody Wants to Be a mm-hmm. Cat. <laughs> Such classics. Uh, but yeah, uh, the, the grand sweeping opera of um, things like Let It Go and Into the Unknown are, are a bit of a more modern invention could say all right well that does it for the thoughtcast for for, uh for jody pulaski thank you again and this is phil palke signing off on the thoughtcast uh you all have a wonderful week have a magical day warm hugs (laughs) 